Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. It's an online ad network for book people, for culture vultures, for people who like books, music, movies, you name it. Go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture websites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, The Believer, Tumblr, the list goes on. You can advertise on all of them, all at once, or you can pick the ones you want and do it piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Go to litbreaker.com. This is an advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Uh, right. right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to blow up on the internet. This is a good way to pretend like you're actually being social. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I have an excellent show for you today. It's Timothy Willis Sanders Day on the Other People Podcast. Timothy Willis Sanders is my guest. Timothy Willis Sanders has three names. He also has a debut novel out called Matt Meets Vic. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. And uh, I just had a really good time talking with him. We had some good uh, collegial banter. So my daughter threw a fit the other day, and I interviewed her, uh, interviewed her about it. I thought I would share that with you. Why not, right? I'm a family man. There's no sense hiding it. She's uh, four years old, and uh, she threw a fit. So I put her on camera, and I will share the audio with you uh, right now. I asked her to uh, explain herself, and she had this to say. Uh, well, Daddy, let me tell you the whole story, okay? She likes to, like, back up and delay the bad news. So, um... I'll tell you from the very beginning. <laughs> I woke up this morning. 
I drove to school after I got dressed, and then I went to swim class after pickup, and I got dressed for swim. She's like repeating herself at this point, like grasping at straws. And I did leaps, and I had a little kickoff. I floated. And then... So she's taking swimming lessons right now, in case that uh, wasn't obvious. I think it's obvious, but she's learning how to swim. It's a big ordeal. Um, what happened? You, I heard you uh, threw a fit. I know. I'm telling you that part. I'm telling you the whole day. And then... Um, Just tell me why you threw the fit. <laughs> this is how kids talk. It's insane. I floated. I thought it was so great that I wanted to get a toy because... That was so great, but then I threw a fit. Okay, so finally the truth comes out. Got it on tape. She's on the record as having thrown a fit. You threw a fit? Yeah, and well, I cried and cried and cried because Mommy didn't let me get a toy. You know how you don't get what you want sometimes? Notice that uh, uh, it was her mother that didn't get her the toy. I'm not the monster who denied my child a toy. What, what's the, what do we always say? Do not cry, but... We say you get... What you get and you don't get set, but it's just... I love toys so much that sometimes I forget about that. <laughs> and then... Um, and then I got home and I did a coloring book. Did you freak out? Kind of. Okay, for the record, she completely freaked out. She went into her bedroom and was like weeping and throwing herself on the bed and like throwing stuffed animals around. And like then, how bad did you freak out? Like what made you freak out? That I was like, <gasps> I don't get a store. Uh, I knew animal because mommy didn't let me. And then I colored in a fairy book. And you felt better? Uh-huh. And then I ate dinner. And then I went to bed. Okay, so that's it. I mean, that's just, that's my life right there in a nutshell. Those kinds of conversations, having to deal with that kind of stuff. Uh, it's getting to the point now where she's old enough to have, uh, you know, uh, will. She's old enough to be stubborn. She can talk back. She can manipulate. She can do stuff. So I'm having to learn how to uh, negotiate how to talk to my child, talk her down. And what uh, my wife has discovered, see, I'm, I think I get more frustrated or I don't know, I, you know, I'm not as good. I'm not as natural at talking to a small child as my wife is. But, uh, you know, what we've discovered is that, uh, you know, our daughter, when she gets upset, if she's really upset about something, however irrational it may be, if we give her like paper and crayons or like a coloring book and some markers that if we let her uh, that kind of draw it out, get her feelings out, <laughs> then it tends to uh, subside. So now whenever she freaks out, we just give her a coloring book and we tell her to like color her feelings. So uh, I have some mail. Let me read a letter and then we'll get going with the show. Uh, this letter comes from a listener named Kara who writes, Dear Brad, I'm listening to episode 345 right now while my 10-month-old daughter sleeps on my lap. So very happy for you and your wife and I'm knocking on wood for your babe. And here I'll interrupt. If you're, if you're new to the show uh, or you haven't listened in a while, uh, my wife and I are expecting a baby, a baby boy uh, this summer. So Kara continues, I listen to your podcast religiously and always think that I'll send an email, but I listen while walking in the neighborhood and never remember 
what the hell I wanted to say once I've returned home. There I am, grinning stupidly and nodding to myself in Michigan, thinking I'm in Los Angeles or New York, where a lot of your guests live. I'm both in conversation, but also not in conversation with your world. I love it, and I'm a rabid fan of the show and this territory of podcasting in general. Oh yeah, I remember now what I always want to tell you, which is that you once mentioned that you were up late reading about Neem Karoli Baba. Someone I like to refer to as, quote, an Indian saint because the, gu- the word guru is too fetishized and or demonized in our culture that has so little patience for the more subtle realms of spiritual life. Anyway, I went to the NKB ashram, the Neem Karoli Baba ashram in Taos, New Mexico once with a Neem Karoli Baba devotee, and it was pretty wild in a great and humbling way. The thing I like about him, Neem Karoli Baba, I mean is that he was all about love and food, and he taught people to feed themselves and each other. His devotees quote him as saying, quote, feed each other, love each other, remember God, end quote, which I like because it's sweet and simple and pretty grounded, i.e. throwing a dinner party or making a sandwich for your friend is a spiritual act, something I both relate to and find beautiful in a Zen kind of way. So let me interrupt again here, uh, like Neem Karoli Baba, which I, I forget what episode it was where I was talking about this in the monologue, but essentially I had an insomnia fit and I couldn't sleep. And so I was up late reading on my iPad and like wound up reading like endlessly like on Wikipedia and elsewhere about Neem Karoli Baba. I forget how I even wound up there, but he was an Indian saint. He was like a Buddhist, I think a Buddhist guru, Hindu. I don't know. That's how little I know or remember. But uh, anyway, that's the context. So Kara continues. Uh, Anyway, I got excited when I heard you mention that was where your late night internet searching ended up for a number of reasons. One, I really truly, uh, one, I really truly appreciate your sensitivity, cultural um, antenna, and well, your Brad Listy spirit. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt again. I want to play some music during this section of the letter. Do you mind that? Can I turn some music on? Why not? Right? Okay, here we go. Kara continues. You often ask your guests about their spiritual stance, which I'm always interested in. And I love to hear writers especially talk about this. Two, sometimes I want to scream when you get a little cynical about the world or publishing or whatever, which I actually think is an unhealthy and or naive reaction on my part. Then I think a lot of times when I am down or whatever, it is actually an overly narrow focus I'm looking through, a constricted spiritual lens. I'm not saying this is true for you, and I definitely think the subject is tedious and personal and dangerous to broach, but... The whole, Neem Karoli, uh, the whole Neem Karoli Baba moment in your monologue touched me because I thought, aha, I knew it. We are all connected by invisible, mysterious, beautiful lines of love. I really believe that. Not because I need to in order to be happy, but because I've seen it in too many ways to ignore. Although believing this does undeniably contribute to my well-being. My point is, your show is magic. The contents of your heart are magic. I'm grateful to your wife because she contributes to the world in which your podcast is able to stand, and I wish for one million blessings to hold your children. There are so many things as, pe- as a people we can do differently, better, with more kindness and awareness and skill. In the meantime, whether we are all hurtling toward the sun or we will figure out how to stanch our ecological, socio-political, and artistic quagmires, I am indebted to your work, which takes chances and opens the doors wide to your undeniably beautiful heart and feeds me on a weekly basis. All the very best, Kara. So, sweet Jesus. <laughs> That's an awfully nice letter. I appreciate that. And I'm trying to I'm trying to parse this part about cynicism. 
where she says, sometimes I want to scream when you get a little cynical about the world, which I actually think is an unhealthy and or naive reaction on my part. Then I think a lot of times when I'm down, I'm reading this right now, trying to figure it out. I shouldn't be cynical. I should be less cynical. It's just hard. It's a daily battle. It's my struggle. Um, but yeah, great letter. If you guys want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. And tell me, you can tell me that, that I'm magic. That my heart is magic. I like that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Timothy Willis Sanders. His novel is called Matt Meets Vic. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. And uh, I suggest uh, that you uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Mr. Timothy Willis Sanders. This is it right here. Should we listen to it? Should I just keep talking? Should we listen to it? Let's just listen to it. Uh, one of the top five most dangerous places to live in, in the country because of the tornadoes. Actually, man, it's like really beautiful. Um, the storms that you get there, because everything's really, really flat. So Oklahoma City is like the uh, second largest city in the nation in terms of landmass. Um, everything's really spread out, uh, but it's super flat. So you can, from any one point, uh, any elevation, you can see for miles and miles and miles. Um, and because it's so flat, tornadoes flourish. Uh, but you can also see um, these giant uh, thunderheads on the horizon. So you right. can see a storm as it comes in, um, and you get really familiar with your surroundings, with the whole state, because you know, you're constantly watching Doppler radar. Whenever you do see a storm coming in, you're turning on the news immediately to see if you need to go to a shelter. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, I drove, was at work that night when all those tornadoes hit and I'm, I'm driving home and it just looks like a, like a war zone. I, I, I don't know. It looked like, a uh, the apocalypse. Have you uh, seen a tornado? Like you've seen a tornado in action at like semi close range? I, I've seen one in the distance, but, um, you know, the, some of them don't last long during a storm. You may have like 30 tornadoes. Some, some of them happen really high up in the air. Um, and, uh, or don't, don't sort of meet in the center forming a real tornado. Um, and, um, uh, but I've seen one far in the distance. Um, but you know, it was only around for a, a handful of minutes. Um, other than that, you can, um, uh, definitely hear them sometimes. Um, you know, it's just, it's really, really, uh, an insane experience. Uh, the sky turns really, really dark. Um, it gets sort of super windy and then super calm. It's very, very strange. Um, but, uh, yeah, we had one pass over us at 500 feet in the air, um, and it took the tops off of uh, some of the buildings. Um, but we were, you know, in our bathtub. Um, you know, I didn't, Who's we? Your family? I didn't actually see it. Yeah, me and my mom and my dad. All, um, you're all in the bathtub together? Yeah, yeah, just like standing in there. Oh, wait, um, shit. Listen to that. There's a guy doing, like, some leaf blowing. We're going to have to pause for a second. Okay, sounds good. 
Uh, I think we were talking about uh, like bad weather in Oklahoma City, and I was curious. Like, did you have you ever done any storm chasing? No, no. Um, they shot that movie at a Twister in in o- Oklahoma. Have you uh, have you seen this movie? Yeah, I mean, this was like what was this Laura Dern and like a flying cow? It was, it was Helen Hunt. Helen and, Hunt, uh, yeah, and and Bill Paxton. Yes, uh, and the movie's ridiculous. Uh, but no, I I've never done any. Um, uh, storm chasing. I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't understand that. I don't want to be anywhere near that stuff. But um, you, you, you said uh, you, that you grew up in Oklahoma City. But is that the, you lived elsewhere as well? Correct. Uh, yeah, uh, I was born in Indianapolis, okay. um, and uh, I uh, spent the first five years or four years uh, on and off um, of my life there. What part? I, I'm from Indiana, or you know, I grew up there in in the suburbs, so. Indian. It was Indianapolis. Uh, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, okay. I'm I'm kind of disconnected from that that part of uh, my life, uh, <laughs> which is strange to say out loud. But well, it was too early. Yeah, yeah, it was too early. Uh, spent some time in Phoenix and in Sacramento as well uh, before uh, moving to Oklahoma City uh, when I was five. Why, why were you moving around? Uh, my parents got divorced when I was really young, and um, I kind of just, uh, you know, uh, bounced around with them. Um, my mom uh, lived in uh, Phoenix uh, for a little while uh, with her brother, and I lived with them for a little bit. And um, uh, my real father lived in Sacramento for a little bit, so I went out and lived in Sacramento for a little bit. Um, and then my mom got married in Oklahoma City, and I moved out to Oklahoma City uh, to be with her. Okay. So, <laughs> are you are you fond of Oklahoma City? Like, do you feel good feelings for it? You know, it's funny because um, it's it's a really funny question because you know I I came here and I tell people I'm from Oklahoma, and you get all kinds of reactions. Um, I think in my 20s I hated it, um, and up until you know. Um, probably my late twenties. I really, really did not like Oklahoma, but, um, as I see, as I get older, I realize that there's a, a, a lot of it made me who I am today. Um, and that I'm thankful for the experiences that I had there. Um, um, simply because it formed my identity. And uh, how old were you when, when, like when the Timothy McVeigh thing happened? Um, so it was 95. So I was 15. That was 90, uh, that was 95. It was 95, uh, April 19th, 1995. Um, you know, it was, it was a big part of my uh, upbringing because, you know, it was just everywhere. And people were singing that song, like the president came. Uh, it was just insane. So, And you heard the explosion. You, you were near enough to hear the explosion. Yeah, um, it was, uh, you know, wasn't anything too insane. It was just like a, uh, a really soft roar, um, but we definitely heard it. It was definitely something that was like, what the what the hell was that? Um, and, um, yeah, it was just just chaos ensued. Uh, so was, that's got to be the central moment of your childhood. I mean, does anything else compare to that? Um, you know, like, I think that that was the first time – I mean, I was 15, so, like, my world was just my 15-year-old world. Um, I think that that was the first time, you know, I really opened up to to realize that there was a whole world of ideas out there, um, especially, you know, um, all the ideas that kind of drove Timothy McVeigh. It was the first time I was aware of a, a political kind of um, extremism, I guess. When you're, when you're 15, I feel like you're very self-centered and focused on your own world and your own feelings, 
Um, at least that was my experience. And so, um, you know, learning about Timothy McVeigh, um, this guy that I shared a namesake with of all things, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, it was, it was interesting because it, it showed that people could, um, do things, uh, for something greater than themselves. Um, even though ultimately maybe it is a sort of, a, an act of ego or, or whatever, but, um, what you mean the bombing? Yeah, like you well, know, it's an some, active, uh, active evil. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it may have been to edify himself, or it may have been to you know put this cause on the map, but ultimately, just something that he did to make himself so, feel special, kind of like a crime and punishment kind of thing. Like you know, um, this narcissistic guy just acts out and wants to be special and wants to be noticed. Anyway, it was just kind of like strange because um, I realized that there was people could do extreme things um, for, for, you know, causes and, and um, um, you know, political reasons. I, I didn't, it didn't really occur to me. I was really just worried about like girls and, and, <laughs> you know, um, you know, puberty and, school and fitting in and things like that um having jerbo jeans or whatever so what kind of kid were you in high school uh i was uh man i was a attention whore like um uh, I, I don't want to say attention whore. i was a class clown i i just you know i i, I didn't have looks so i had i had to make people laugh and you're a pretty good looking guy uh yeah i was um really really big in high school i was um, when you were fat yeah, I was a fat kid. Um, uh, <laughs> Gene and, and Blake are um, – I, I, Gene Morgan you know, and Blake Butler. Yeah, like we um, – I don't know. Maybe we'll get into this later. But uh, yeah, we're like formed a former fat kids crew. Um, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was a big kid. I was like um, – I topped out at like 310, uh, 315. Sweet. Um, That's huge. That's really big. Yeah, and I'm six six two, six one, six two in in high school. Maybe I'm six three now. Um, so yeah, it was like not nobody was <laughs> nobody was interested. So so what was, uh, going, so what was going on? Like why were you like why were you so big? Uh, well, uh, I had a stepfather. My stepfather was in the, the military, <laughs> and uh, my mom was was working a lot. So I, I had a lot of time alone and and uh, home alone. And, um, yeah, I would just like eat waffles all the time, like for, for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, like my mom would leave me 20 bucks to order a pizza or something. And, um, I would, uh, you know, not order the pizza, just have a bunch of waffles and then, you know, go to Burger King the next day. It was just, yeah, just eating a lot of bad shit. And my, uh, my dad was in the military, so he was gone a lot. He was, um, was over, ste overseas. stepdad or, or uh, biological dad? Uh, stepdad. Usually, when I say just dad, I I, I mean my stepdad, the guy that uh, the guy that raised me. Um, well, where was uh, your biological dad? Was he like an absentee? Uh, yeah, he was uh, drinking. Um, he uh, uh, passed away when I was thirteen um, in nineteen ninety three. Um, he had uh, stomach cancer, liver cancer. Um, you know, it, it just had spread all over. Um, he was like a four pack a day guy, lifelong drinker. Um, four, you know, pack, I have four packs of cigarettes a day. Four packs of cigarettes. Salem's uh, Salem menthols. Yeah. Fuck, man. So that's like, um, that's, like, that's like smoking while eating. 
Yeah, no, it's it's insane. Uh, fifth of vodka uh, every day is just really, really bad. So was it um, was it bad when you knew, like, when you were a young kid and you went to Sacramento and were like living with him? Was he boozing with you? Was it did it ever get uh, sketchy or abusive or anything? You know, I don't. I, I'm sure he was. I didn't notice it. I have uh, probably three memories of my real father, none of which are, are that positive. Um, so yeah, I think that you know he was probably drinking. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely drinking. Um, I don't know what else he could have been doing, um, uh, but he was definitely drinking. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. But your stepdad stepped up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, he was 23 when he married my mom. I think my mom was um, like 27. Um, so there was a little bit of an age difference. But, you know, the the thought of taking on a, a child, a, a black child, at that, he was a white guy um, at the age of 23. Um, you know, he wasn't, you know, number one awesome father, of course, but, uh, you know, he was 23 years old. Um, and, um, yeah, that yeah. Seems, that seems, it seems crazy generationally when I think about, like, my parents, like, getting married. My mom was, like, 21 or 22 when she had my older sister, and it's like, when I, <laughs> like, I think about myself at 22. I'm like, what in the fuck? Are any, how, do, how is my sister alive? How are any of us alive, you know? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I mean, imagine you're just you're taking on this kid that's already developed that's not yours and um is a completely different race and um you know I remember when he when uh you know the one of the first days he was like I can either be your father or I can be uh the guy your your mom's married to and I was like hey you know I want I want you to be my father. So it was a, it was a sweet moment but He actually said that to you? Yeah, he said that to me. He was a, he was a smart guy. Um, I don't. Uh, Is he still he, with us? Well, he div- he and my mom divorced when I was uh, um, uh, sixteen years old. Okay, um, it, it's an interesting story. Like he um, uh, cheated on my mother, and I used to play. Ba- he cheated with one of his coworkers, and I played basketball with his coworker um, and with another coworker. And wait, wait, wait. So the guy that your your stepdad cheated on your mom and then the, the lady that he cheated with played on your basketball team? No, no. The lady he cheated with worked at this company that this other guy that uh, worked with my dad that I played basketball with. Okay. All <laughs> is, right. does that make, does this all make sense? A little bit, yeah. So, um, so, he, so, he, so, he, so he, I found out that my dad was cheating on my mom through uh, – one of my dad's coworkers. Who well, he, did he just spill the beans, or did he tell you because he felt like the uh, moral uh, it was a moral necessity? Yeah, he told me. He told me in this kind of weird roundabout way. Um, and uh, yeah, he was just like your dad and this woman have been spending a lot of time together. Um, you should talk to your mom about it. You know. And did you? So I, and so you go tell your mom. Yeah, and I had to tell my mom that, which uh, is uh, which is that's fucked, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't ever talk about this stuff, so it's like hearing it out loud uh, is really weird. But yeah, no, it's, it's um, not that good. App- yeah, not well, good. no, but I mean, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm starting to paint a picture. I mean, I'm like, I don't want to over psychoanalyze this, but it's like uh, Timothy McVeigh like blows up downtown Oklahoma City within earshot of your high school. Uh, you've already, you already had, you know, your father's passed away. Your biological father, with whom you don't have like a, a great relationship slash like any like much of any relationship, and then your stepdad, who's kind of stepped into the father role, sort of fucks things up and cheats on your mom. So like that's a lot of that's a lot of tumultuousness to be dealing with it uh, as an adolescent. 
It is. It is. Um, I don't want to, uh, you know, say that he wasn't a, a, a decent guy, though. Uh, it was because of him. You know, he hated the, the television. Like, we watched maybe an hour or so of TV. I got a 30-minute cartoon on Saturday. I, I couldn't stay in front of the television long. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't buy me much, but he would buy me books. He wasn't a reader. Um, my mom was a bit of a reader. Um, but for some reason, they... Uh, he he was kind of instrumental in sort of giving me books and feeding me books and um, making sure that I didn't spend uh, any time in front of the television. You know, Nintendo was uh, uh, non-existent in my house. Um, I think we got a, a Sega once, and uh, he had it for uh, a day, and uh, I accidentally broke it, and he took it back, and we didn't we didn't uh, have it after that. So um, I owe him a lot. Like still, I mean, I, 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 uh, I don't talk to him, but, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah. Well, okay. So you, like, what kind of books was he feeding? Like what were, what were big books and, and authors for you as a kid? Like, were you into like the, the fantasy stuff or what, like, what was it? Yeah. So like, um, uh, the search for delicious, uh, like the fan, the biggest book for me when I was a kid was, uh, the phantom toll booth. I must've read that thing like 10 times. Um, and, uh, yeah, just fantasy books, Hobbit, um, uh, some kind of some illustrated uh, history books and um, uh, like anatomy books. I remember um, you know, we had encyclopedias um, and uh, lots of comic books. I was a big comic book kid as well, um, so I was reading reading constantly. Yeah, and then what about like like uh, like having a white stepfather, uh, like you know having like a parents who are mixed race, and then. Uh, like growing up and, and kind of developing your own sense of identity, did like having a white stepfather affect you in any way? Because your biological father is black, correct? Yeah, yeah. My biological father is black, and my mother is um, uh, my mother is Indian and white. Um, she has like a interesting story as well. Oh, okay. So uh, I thought your mom was black, but she's Indian, uh, like she's, na- like Native American, or you mean like India, like like India, okay. like like um, uh, Burmese, like. Um, uh, Western Burmese, where Western Burma is where her family is from. Um, well, her her dad's side of the family. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> shit, man. Uh, uh, identity was a, a a really complex thing, um, and and really hard to figure out. And it's the, you know something probably I'm still on some unconscious level uh, grappling with. How do you identify? Um, you know, I, I identify as black. Um, in, in part because, um, that's just how the world sees me and that's how the world takes me. Um, but you know, uh, it's for a long time, I was really confused about that. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, uh, proud and, and, and black and, um, uh, you know, that's where my identity lays right now. Um, and uh, I don't see that changing. And, you're, and, so. you're, and your stepdad was in the military? Yeah, my stepdad was in the military. He was in the Air Force. Um, pilot? Uh, no, actually. Um, he was uh, a guy that uh, repaired um, uh, radar. So AWACS planes, you know, if they had a problem, you know, he would be a, a, like a troubleshooter. So he was in the, he was in the Gulf War. Um, from, uh, he was in Saudi Arabia from 91 to like 92 um, before he went, he was actually, um, you know, uh, he was a funny guy, um, like, you know, to tell jokes, always had zingers. 
Um, and uh, we had a pretty chill relationship. It was after he got back, um, he had Gulf War syndrome and, you know, it was just stomach pains all the time. Um, what is that? I, I, should know, but I should know more about this. What causes that? Uh, to be honest, uh, I haven't looked into it that much. But uh, from what I understand, it's like the gas that was used over there. Um, uh, some of it had, you know, drifted um, and they had unknowingly inhaled some of it. And there are just a range of different types of symptoms um, uh, for soldiers coming back from there. Um, it, it affected, I think something like 3000 to 4,000 soldiers. Um, I know I could be, uh, uh, it's been a long time since I've thought about any of this, but, um, well, that's, a, it, that, that's another thing though, because your father, the, the guy that you identified as your father, uh, and who, who you look to left to go away into a war theater for like over a year. Is that right? Yeah. When you're yeah. like 11 years old, that had to fuck you up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when he was gone, that was actually when I started eating a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, I was going to say, like, enter the waffles. Yeah, yeah. It was like, Dad's gone, so, you know, uh, I can uh, eat butter straight from the jar or chug syrup. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, dude. I'll tell you, like, uh, I think about that when I think about veterans and I think about families. Like, nothing makes me uh, more emotional than seeing, like, families be reunited after these guys have been overseas. Like, it's how can you you'd have to be like a stone not to be moved by that that's a really intense stress to place on families on anybody i mean especially the kids yeah uh, i think one of the only times i remember just uh getting a hug and i love you was when he came back from saudi arabia and him stepping off the plane um and you know during the the second gulf war as it was one of the the reasons i was just really passionate about you know not going to war was because i understood um, on a fundamental level, um, how families were literally going to be ripped apart, yeah. um, not only in the United States, but, you know, uh, overseas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And it wasn't even, you know, they talk about the, the human cost of the war was low. Like, uh, you know, it was actually really, really high, even though we didn't have a lot of casualties. It was, well, it, there's it, different kinds of casualties. Really, there's different yeah. kinds of casualties, you know, and like, there's maybe not like a huge body count, but the psychological and the people are maimed and the families, you know, like you're saying, are torn apart. And like what happens, too, is that, you know, you come home and you have Gulf War syndrome or you come home and you are so psychologically messed up that it's hard for you to relate to civilian life or to, to kind of reassimilate with your family. And, you know, it sounds kind of like that was what happened to your stepfather, right? Like there's got to be, you know, that experience must have uh, marred him in some way, whether it was physically or psychologically or both. Yeah, um, you know, he just he just really withdrew from uh, my mom and myself. Um, um, so I'm sure it was just, um, you know, I there were probably other factors, but you know, um, I I think you know just being over there hurt him psychologically and um, physiologically. Um, was he seeing like bodies and was he seeing violence and seeing like wounded people and everything? Uh, I don't know. He he never really talked about it. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't think it was like a Vietnam situation where you know you, you know Uncle Joe just doesn't want to talk about it. But it, it was just something he didn't he didn't discuss. He would talk more about uh, um, Saudi Arabian culture and Arab culture. Um, uh, he loved sharing facts about uh, about his observations. Um, but he would never talk about any, you know, specific combat situations. Isn't that oh. weird? Isn't that weird? Like soldiers, uh, the trauma of combat or, you know, whatever it is that happens 
to people who go off to war, they often come back and don't want to talk about it. It's too painful to even talk about. And I guess like, I'm like coming at it from my, uh, perspective, which is, uh, you know, uh, privileged by comparison. I've never had to like deal with any of that. Like something bad happens to me. Like all I want to do is talk about it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> I, have a, I have a podcast for God's sakes. It's like, you'd think if you went through something like that, you would come back and just be like, I saw some fucked up shit. And like, I'm really shaken by this, but like, it must be so bad that it just closes you up. Like that's like a, it's like a, uh, it's a trope at this point. You know what I'm saying? Like the soldier who won't talk about his or her experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, growing up with action movies, it's like you, you just imagine it like that and you'd want to come back and be like, oh man, there was an explosion and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I, I would say that, you know, when you, you have your, your friend or, you know, your, uh, a soldier die in front of you it's like totally different thing you know it's something i can't even imagine like it's impossible for me well that level of insanity sort of defies language you know what i'm saying it's like it's hard it's hard to find a language to describe it i think especially if you've experienced it it's just like what do you say about that it's a it's a complete mess and uh it's you know an unsustainable way of conflict resolution um so okay so like it, it you seem like a really good natured guy and uh you know, having gone through all that you've gone through, like difficult upbringing in a lot of respects, um, it just sounds like, you know, you kind of channeled a lot of whatever frustration you might have been feeling as an adolescent into food and like the consumption of food. But I'm wondering, did you ever have like any kind of super hardcore rebellious streak? Did you, did you ever get really angry or um, <laughs> like, what, like how did, did you ever have a period in, in your uh, youth where you were doing lots of drugs or drinking or were you scared off of that by your dad and his experiences? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was really big um, when I uh, um, in high school, and in my senior year of high school, um, I uh, in, in Oklahoma City, the suburbs of Oklahoma City. I grew up uh, mid, this place called Midwest City, more specifically, um, and it was a big um, meth uh, meth place. There was a lot of meth. There was like a you know a meth meth lab blowing up every week and uh there's just shit uh, blowing up and there's just tornadoes and explosions in oklahoma city at this point (laughs) yeah uh we had a a meth lab blow up behind our school um and so it it you know that that was in the community and that found its way to me um i uh you know found that um it helped me focus and everybody was kind of is one of those kind of things like um i don't know if you've ever heard of that heroin outbreak in plano um, in the nineties, um, uh, it's just kind of something that hits a, a specific community and everybody starts doing it just because they have no kind of knowledge of the outside world or something. Uh, but it was like cheerleaders and we're doing it so they could study all night and then go to cheerleading practice. Like they were doing heroin. No, no. Um, I'm sorry. In, in my community that I grew up in, in my high schools, more specifically, um, Meth was a huge problem. Oh, I was, was going to say, meth. I don't think heroin's helping anybody study for their test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, like a bunch of kids died. No, I say a bunch of kids. Like three or four kids died in the Plano area. Just heroin overdoses. These like, you know, upper class uh, kids just, you know, <laughs> dying of overdoses. It's insane. Uh. Um, but in my community, yeah, we had um, uh, meth was our um, our problem drug, our invasive species, if you will. It's like it's the worst drug. Yeah, um at first it seems like the best the best thing ever. Um but um I saw 
a couple of my friends get real crazy. Anyway, I lost like 120 pounds. It's the best diet drug in history. Yeah, I lost 120 pounds. Um, I um, um, yeah, it was just a it was a great thing. It was a huge turnaround in my senior year, and uh, <laughs> it was a real um, blow to me psychologically. But I didn't know it at the time. It's, it's uh, it like leaves holes in your brain. It literally puts holes in your brain, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I, I I would imagine that if you do it long enough, it it probably does that. So, how much sure. were you doing? What was your intake? Um, you know, it wasn't like an insane, I wasn't injecting. There were some guys that they got to that point. Um, but you know, probably smoking it every day, I would say like, um, were you, were you ever sleeping? What's up? Were you sleeping at all? Uh, yeah, I was sleeping. Um, I, you know, I would sleep on and off. Um, it wasn't, um, I guess it didn't get super bad. Like I, you know, people say that, uh, you, you know, you did meth and it's kind of like, oh, well you must've done, had a $500 a day habit and destroyed your life. Um, I didn't, uh, completely, there were people that did, but I was able to keep it, um, keep it in check. Um, you don't have your dad's, uh, addictive personality. I, I, I do. Um, do. Okay. I, I do, but I have my mom's, I don't know, uh, my, my mom's sort of intolerance of feeling like shit. Um, okay. That was the, the whole thing that kept me away from getting really strung out and really, um, you know, becoming an alcoholic or anything really is because I just hated feeling like shit. That's um, how I am. I can't stand a hangover. I have no tolerance for it at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm really soft on the inside, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's and, all those uh, waffles, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Um, but no, I, I quit it. Um, and, uh, I haven't, I haven't touched it in, you know, um, uh, 20 years. So well, you, not 20 you years. You quit it like in high school. Uh, I quit it, uh, shortly after high school. Did yeah. you ever put the weight back on? Um, well, I put about 50 of it back on 50 pounds back on, but then I, uh, started, uh, kind of trying to keep it in check by doing healthy things. And my, you know, my food consciousness was raised and I stopped, um, Drinking Mountain Dew what five times it? a day. What, what raised your food consciousness? Was there some like book or thing that you saw or listened to that like made you pivot? Um, not really. Um, there was a cafe uh, that I used to go to. I don't know. I started just like um, uh, in high school. I had a buddy um, named Brian Van Ash who um, is uh, one of these guys that uh, kind of succumbed to the drug culture. There, um, he, you know, we we had been on and off friends since I was sixteen. And, uh, he, um, you know, was the guy that introduced me to like Allen Ginsberg and, um, uh, William Burroughs and, um, those guys. And so I started, you know, opening my, my mind just in general and, you know, as, as you do when you're a teen, um, and, uh, that led to, you know, understanding things about, you know, GMOs and, um, understanding, how food is made and that's a real process and um things like that i never never became a vegetarian or anything like that um but uh i just stopped eating crap um pretty much that's it yeah it's it's amazing like the food uh agribusiness is pretty fucked up the way food gets made yeah you know but people it's like it's like it's not pleasant to learn how the sausage is made but i think it's important to know yeah, it's it's important to know. It's definitely important to know. So you were getting into literature then at that point, like late high school, um, doing math, dropping weight, reading poetry. 
<laughs> all the thi- all the things that teenagers do, or like you know, some teenagers do. Yeah, I actually started out. Um, I did an arts program. I uh, was a painter, um, and uh, I could I I still can draw. I was reading a lot of comic books when I was a kid, so I I just drew a lot. Um, and I didn't even I I, I didn't think of writing um, as a as a thing um, until college. I uh, just you know found myself. Um, hanging with this group of poets. Um, Where did you go to college? Uh, I went to the University of Central Oklahoma. Um, uh, I started out in, at the University of Oklahoma, then I went to the University of Central Oklahoma. Where's that? Uh, 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 it's in Edmond, Oklahoma, okay. and uh, OU is in OU is in Norman. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I just kind of uh, started uh, uh, enjoying the process of uh, writing more. It was actually a lot cheaper. I didn't have to buy canvases and paints and all that bullshit. Um, and uh, I, um, yeah, um, just uh, kind of started writing stories for, I don't know, uh, really bad stories, you know, thinking I was going to be in Harper's one day. Um, and uh, um, yeah, just did that for about five or six years um all the, all, the way th- all the way through getting your degree and everything yep oh, yeah <laughs> okay so but you there was never any inkling of like i'm going to go join the military and continue this legacy uh you know what's funny is that, that that's what my mom wanted for me um her, my uncle uh has a, a i guess my cousin is in the marines um and uh you know she um she always imagined that for me um i think she understood what it was um uh like for a black male in the world and thought that that was the the quickest path for me um to uh to attain respectability uh in the world so i don't know it's strange but you didn't uh, do it you had no you had no interest oh no interest at all i was like the last thing i was ever going to do it had destroyed my uh you know the one and only person i re- really thought was my dad um and um what it pissed him off that you didn't do it no, it didn't. It didn't piss him off. My mom wanted me to, but um, at that point, you know, there was very little influence that she had over me, um, and so I didn't. I didn't listen to it. Um, he, my uh, my my stepdad uh, was in the um, was an enlisted man and and had left the military shortly after he got back from the Gulf War. Um, so he was he wasn't interested in me going into the military at all. Um, it was just my mom really wanted it, but, um, there was really nothing she could do to really persuade me at that point. I've seen what this does. No, thanks. What's that? I said you, you were like, I've seen what this does to people. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, I didn't want to go through basic Um, growing up, you know, uh, like I said, I was in, in high school, I was just a class clown, always screwing off and, you know, that was always the threat. Um, you know, we'll send you to military school. So as far <laughs> as I, I was concerned, that was like electing to go to prison or something was to go into the military. I have a lot of respect for the military um, because I understand, um, you know, I'm, I'm privy to its rituals and its um, its culture. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it, it's a strange thing to have respect for um, or to, you know, say you're a liberal and, and have respect for the military, I guess. But, um it's it's uh an institution that i um I, I do have some i'm i'm in awe of in some cases well i mean hey listen these guys are putting these guys and gals are putting their lives on the line and 
um, you do have to have like a national defense. I think that's like an, an unfortunate necessity of life on this planet. Um, I'm, I've never had a problem with the people who serve in the military. Who I have a problem with are the people in suits and ties who are like sending these kids off to battle, you know, on false pretenses and whatnot, and who've never <laughs> who've never dealt with a, a day of combat in their lives and things like that. Like that misappropriation of military force and the lives that wind up getting caught up in those gears is what pisses me off more than the notion that somebody might elect to serve or be a soldier, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. Well, what's interesting is that, um, you know, it, it's not just the, the sacrifice, but you know, you look at the military, those guys have, um, uh, free healthcare. If you, even if you're enlisted, uh, it's free dental, free vision, you know, um, we never, paid for that stuff. Um, so it, it pretty much sustained me all throughout my childhood. Um, and, uh, um, it's just kind of interesting that, you know, this kind of single payer, um, you know, free healthcare system works within the context of the military, but we can't spread that out. But, um, um no, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's like, we've got like the model, it's working great, you know, but like, let's make sure that we can't, uh, you know, let's try to, let's try to dismantle any attempt to like, make sure that like the wider population can have access to a doctor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like <laughs> you have some politics. It sounds like what? It sounds like you have some politics. Like I know that we all have politics either through expression or omission or whatever, but it sounds like you have put some thought into, um, you know how you feel about things politically and have maybe incorporated that into your work i mean your book um you know deals with the with the year 2004 uh you know bush versus Kerry, that time in american history like that must have figured like the whole you know second gulf war and everything uh you know that it entailed going through what you had gone through as a kid uh must have been especially uh difficult to watch um like the election was difficult to watch. Well, just and just the way that the war was conducted and the way that it was uh, the way that it was launched and like the, yeah. the effects that it had. I mean, it's a it's a disaster. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, I, it was a total disaster. It, you know, you're um, how old are you? I'm thirty nine. Thirty nine. Um, so, I mean, it was kind of fucking exhausting, like. <laughs> the Bush years, I mean, they were just really, really exhausting. Like we had 9-11 and then we had this guy who had just woke up and every day I was just pissed off at. Uh, I, I think that, that it takes a really, really, really um, – it takes a psychological toll. Yeah. Um, the most, the most, maybe the most depressing night of my – or one of the most like searingly depressing nights of my entire life was the night of the 2004 election. Like I think a lot of people – who were opposed to the war in Iraq and who sort of saw the bullshit for what it was like that to see that rewarded, um, with a second term was really difficult to swallow for me. Yeah. I mean, and, and you just knew, I, I feel like I knew on, on some level whether or not I would admit it to myself, but I knew that Kerry was going to lose and I knew it was a terrible candidate and that we were just going to go back and, and, you know, it's like these guys have what the, the decisions they make day in and day out, affect the country for decades to come. And it's, it's just like, I don't know. I knew that Bush was like, Bush was like one of the guys from Oklahoma. Like, yeah, I knew Bush as a, as a, as a man, uh, you know, that type. as a person in Oklahoma, like I met that guy, he's like my, uh, you know, uh, 
my mom's boss, you know, or something. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I, I don't want, I, he's a nice guy. He's great to have at barbecues. Let's be clear. Like, right. but he is terrible at running the country. So it was a real emotional thing. It was like, I knew about the Gulf War and like it, it had affected me on a fundamental level. So it was very personal. And, um, so I, that was just very exhausting. Um, and it's not a sort of focus point for my fiction. My fiction is kind of, um, uh, so much of politics is like rage for me. Um, <laughs> well, but it's also, it's also really hard to incorporate politics into fiction. Like if you start, if you start, uh, injecting political views into dialogue or whatever, it can very easily draw the reader out. It sounds like soapboxing and it, it's like an authorial intrusion. Yeah, I mean Baldwin had this this great thing that you know uh, rage is uh, difficult to bring under the dominion of intelligence, and um, it's really just good for you know having opinions or views, I guess, um, or yearning for social justice. But uh, art is something that uh, um, needs to be distant from that in some in some way. Um, and so while it's, uh, uh, it's a, a part of the book, I, I touch on the book, um, it's only because it's a part of the, the characters' lives. Um, well, and, but I was reading yeah. something, I was reading, uh, what was it? I think it was just like a, a eulogy for, uh, David Carr, the New York Times journalist who just passed away. And it was by, uh, Tanisi Coates. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but. It's uh, Tanahisi. Tanahisi, yeah. So I, I, I fucked it up. I think I could be fucking it up. I don't know. Yeah. That's just how I read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tanahisi, <laughs> Uh, but he was talking about like a lesson that David Carr imparted to him about how to make an argument in journalism and how you need to tie it to narrative. It really resonated with me. It's like if you have some sort of argument that you want to make um, politically or otherwise, the most powerful way to do it is to embed it into story um, rather than to just like be like, you know, battering people with polemic or whatever your opinions. It's like to find a way to to show it as opposed to just telling it. I guess that's like the elemental law of or you know it's the maxim everybody always throws out in like day one of workshop but it made sense to me yeah yeah it's um uh definitely makes sense to me um good no i was gonna say so like when it comes to like your uh, um publishing history and like your transition from somebody who's like into books and is uh, you know kind of fucking around with uh writing as a college student to like wanting to actively publish and possibly make a go of it, uh, you know, as some kind of career or vocation. Like when did that transition happen? And, um, you know, like, like what, what role did, uh, because I feel like you're part of, um, I, I often feel like you're part of the outlet world, which is like largely happening online. I don't know if you would agree with that, but you know, you're definitely somebody who, um, pops up, in the context of internet literature a lot. So I'm curious to know if like you found community there and if like that was part of, um, you know, your formation as a writer and how you approach publishing and whatnot. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, uh, just kind of, uh, fucked around for like a long time reading as much as I could. Um, you know, writing, um, stories that I didn't like or I didn't feel, um, were true. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think coming in touch with the internet, um, it definitely exposed me to a lot of newer writers, uh, writers, um, that, you know, weren't Michael Shabon and, and, um, you know, just uh, not to 
denigrate him or anything like that, but or disparage him. But it, it's kind of um, I don't know. The internet opened me up and really kind of helped me focus um, my voice. Um, and um, well, it probably expo- I mean, I feel this is the way I feel because I feel like writers like Shaben or Franzen or anybody who's been sort of like knighted by like the New York Times or the New Yorker or whatever. Um, they're sort of like establishment authors and um, many of them excellent. I mean, maybe all of them excellent, depending on who you are. Like, I, I you know, I, I also don't want to denigrate, but I can sometimes feel like when I pick up books um, that are supposedly, um, you know, they have that kind of stamp of approval. I don't feel like they necessarily speak to me in the way that books that are um, happening uh, on the periphery or that are published by independent presses or writing that appears online or even on like Twitter. Like sometimes I can feel like, okay, finally someone's saying it. Like this is, this is resonating with me more than like that 600 page novel with like, you know, a zillion five star reviews uh, is, you know, does that make any sense? No, it makes total sense. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that they're just with the, with the internet coming along, people, are sort of being a lot more um, themselves or putting them their personal selves out there a little bit more. Um, and I think that there's a, there, there's been a shift, you know, I, I think that there are names for it. Um, but uh, I, I, I sort of struggle for any kind of articulate thing to say about it that hasn't already been said. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of like people are more sincere. People are more, um, uh, forthcoming about their lives. Um, and they're, they're more honest. I think, you know, what I look for in any art, um, is just, uh, kind of honesty. Now that's a virtue I, I kind of enjoy more in, in, in art than other people might enjoy. Um, some people, you know, might look for art that is sort of, uh, um, have different qualities than what I would be looking for, but I'm just looking for honesty. I want to see the person. I want to see the, the, the person that's writing it. Um, and, uh, I want to, I don't want some, some premeditated, premeditated fantasy, um, or kind of screen. Uh, and that's just me personally, everything else. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Like, I feel like, I feel, I feel like there's so much artifice in terms of, social media and online curation of self and you know that kind of presentation that whenever somebody when somebody it feels like somebody's really speaking their honest self it tends to cut through and resonate with me and whether it's uh you know something that they post online on social or something that they publish in a more professional uh realm yeah yeah and it's it's interesting you know because um you know I've, i've had this conversation with gene before um, and Gene Morgan, we, who edited HTML Giant for years, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so he would, uh, we would talk about this. How you know you could publish something in the um, you know some random uh, literary journal, you know one that's been around for decades, um, and you know maybe <laughs> maybe fifty people would see it. Um, out of that fifty people, maybe twenty people would read it. Out of that twenty people, maybe ten people um, would actually like it. Um, and out of that 10 people, five people would actually buy your book or, you know, become serious fans. Um, whereas the internet, you publish something there and uh, the ratios are just so much greater. It's, you know, it's like 
maybe a thousand people see it, um, and maybe 500 people like it. And, you know, um, so it's just so much easier to, uh, build an audience, uh, through the internet as well. And so I, that's where I, you know, you see things like, um, uh, alt lit, things like that, uh, come into being, um, I don't really think it is an alternative. I just think of it as literature. Um, but, um, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's what it is. So, <laughs> and, and I mean, yeah, because there's all this talk that like that moment is over, you know, alt lit is dead and like, you know, it, it's uh, all that stuff. I don't even know how to even comprehend any of that. I th- and I think too, when like ever there are these like quote unquote movements and people get lumped together and you know, the, a certain, I guess there's a certain aesthetic. I'm sure you could probably define it if you sat down and tried. I mean, cause you do write in that like spare style, um, lots of declarative sentences, not a lot of like, uh, expository writing. Uh, you know, how would you define your style? Do you have a sense of it? Like, have you defined it for yourself? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a lot of focus on style. I, I, and I, I really, um, you know, I, there's, I, I felt that like I obsessed over style, um, for a long time. Um, just because I, I don't know, I, it just seemed weird. It seemed a, a thing that causes a lot of people, um, a lot of anxiety. I've published things in, in several different, um, styles and there are many different styles that really interest me, um, as an, as an author, as a writer. Um, there are styles that I think I'm better at than, um, you know, uh, I think that there was, uh, there's a quote, I forget who it's by, but you know, I wish I could be the writer I wanted to be, but I'm the writer I am. Um, and so, you know, there's a certain way of writing that I think I'm, capable of expressing myself but you know there are other styles of writing that provide me more enjoyment but may not be um uh as good as the other stuff so i i don't know i think style is interchangeable i think substance is what um what uh what really matters like what um like i don't know you had Bar- Bartholomew on your show and he said it he was like um the people are more interesting than the uh than the sentences um, I don't know if he was quoting someone, um, but, uh, you know, that, that really encapsulates it. It's, it's just what, what's, what's there. Um, because the style just doesn't really matter. You can write a, a damn good, um, honest story, um, 10 different ways. Um, there's that Raymond, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Raymond Quino, Quino, <laughs> but he, he has his book called exercises and styles. And it's basically the same story, um, uh, told in, in, I don't know how many styles it's a uh, hundred different styles. It's just like a really, really short story. Um, and it fills up the whole book and, you know, some of those are going to resonate more, but it's the substance is the same, um, throughout. So I don't know. Um, no, that makes sense to me. And like the, the Bartholomew thing that you said, you know, where I sometimes feel like people who get really caught up in pretty prose, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not nearly as interested in that. I mean, I just want, I guess I want clarity and I'm interested in uh, honesty and feeling like I'm, uh, I don't know, getting a, an, an open window into the person who's writing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I go back, you go back to, um, I go back to, to Bartholomew again, it, and it's the same with him, uh, maybe like Joy Williams. It feels like uh, an uncle is sitting right next to me at a barbecue telling me a story um, even though it's not, you know, it's not a hokey uncle st- uncle story. It's just a really interesting story. Um, but it feels like the author is right there next to me, and you know, we both got uh, beers, and you know, they're telling me a story. 
Um, I'm not like I'm I, I'm not like I'm reading literature right now or I'm reading um, an experiment right now um, that is ultimately, you know, uh, an intellectual game, um, you know, things like schools and and whether they're dead and whether they're here, whether they're gone, um, you know, generation Y, generation X and like just all the, these ways of kind of generalizing and and reducing and, yeah, reducing and and sort of intellectualizing things it doesn't have any effect on like real life. I I, I don't I don't know. I maybe it does in long term, but it it doesn't in my immediate life. Whether I'm um, you know published here or there, um, you know I still have to take the trash out every Thursday. Right. You know the the leaf blowing man's still going to come and <laughs> and be annoying outside or something. <laughs> so I don't know. So let's talk about porn. Uh, porn is addressed in your book a little bit. And then, uh, yeah. like, this is something that I think a lot of people slash almost everybody, uh, has some experience with and has some sort of relationship. <laughs> to. It's true. Uh, it's true. Yeah, no, no, it's totally true. Men, 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 maybe more than women, but plenty of women are into porn. I know plenty of my female friends, um, you know, the, like the, the ubiquity of it, the easy access online. Um, it's a real, it's a real problem. I mean, it's a, I think it's a toxic thing and it's, uh, no, but at the same time, like, uh, who doesn't love some good porn? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like anything else, you know. It's like, you know, where our, our bodies are, um, uh, you know, we might, it, our prehistoric bodies might come across a strawberry, um, you know, once a month. And when we eat the strawberry, we want to eat, we, we eat it really quickly. Um, uh, but now we can, we can manufacture a giant strawberry and we can eat strawberries every single day. Um, you know, you take a caveman and you told him that there was, you know, virtual sex and meat on every street corner. He would come back and he would be a, a he would be eight hundred pounds <laughs> within within two months, and he would just be jerking off all the time. Got to get that caveman some meth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just our our minds aren't we're we're humans and we're very good at at, at sort of creating the things that we want the most and providing them. Um, for, for money. Um, and, uh, yeah, porn is just like one of those things. I think it's a really, really, um, it's been a really, really toxic thing in my life. Um, how much porn were you watching? Um, you know, I don't think any more than the normal guy. Um, uh, but it was because like uh, porn addiction is a real thing. I I talked to somebody, uh, I've known, I knew uh, a writer, uh, like it was a writer person online, you know, who kind of confessed to me, that her fiance was addicted to porn. It was a real issue for them. And like, he couldn't stay away from the computer and like, couldn't stay away from the porn. Like somebody who's addicted to drugs can't stay away from drugs. I and mean, it was a, that, it was that level of, of, uh, toxicity and, and, uh, difficulty for him. Yeah. I mean, just the reward circuitry in your brain just keeps going and you just get addicted to that feeling. Um, and porn is definitely, definitely, um, something that's highly addictive, just like, you know, uh, a 20 ounce diet Coke or, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, sweets, it's their drugs. It's just, I don't know. It's just, you have so much access to it and it's just right there. And it's so difficult just not to be like, yeah. Oh no. And the fun, the funny thing too, like, is that like, we talk about like our, we, we have a shared taste in literature, at least in terms of like, uh, you know, the authenticity and kind of like wanting like artifice stripped away, or at least like constructed in a way that makes it feel real you know mm-hmm. um, but it's the same thing with porn like there's nothing worse than worse than porn where you feel like they're acting like all you want like i just want real people <laughs> having sex i don't want like 
some you know some people like having this really like theatrical fake orgasm that's just depressing yeah it's really it's really weird um so the the way that i was introduced to porn is kind of in a um a weird way um it was so when my uh, dad went to saudi arabia my stepdad <laughs> went to saudi arabia just waffles and porn yeah, he couldn't take his porn with him. He tried, but he couldn't. So they, you know, you can't take porn into Saudi Arabia. Oh, right. Um, and so he had to mail it back. So he, <laughs> my mom gets it. She opens it up and then she just like sets it, sets it next to their bed. Right. So it's just like this box of porn. Um, and so I get into it and, um, you know, I'm like, um, my mom's going to kill me um, if she ever hears this. But. Um, you know, I'm like 11, um, I'm like prepubescent and I, you know, it's watching this is just like a shock. I'm like, oh my wow. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I can't, it, what it did to my brain. And so that was just like, well, it, see, but this know. is the thing, this is the thing because they, I mean this, and this is the case for, um, people who are older, but you're 11 years old and you're watching this kind of depiction of male female relations and male female intimacy and sexual you know sexuality uh it's a pretty twisted like thing to internalize when you're that impressionable and that clueless as to what you know yeah. is going on do you know what i'm saying <laughs> so it's like and like even if you have like even if you know better i think that like the repeated viewing of that sort of stuff can warp a person's sense of uh you know how to behave you know and what women want or what men want you know yeah, well, I mean, it affects your brain. Like, it, it affects what actually turns you on, and what's in there isn't actual sex. So when I, you know, started being of age and having actual sex, I was just terrible. You know, disappointed a lot of women. Like, you know, it's just a. Were you, get, uh, were you getting laid when you were big? I mean, was it like you were having sex in high school and stuff? No, no. Um, I lost my virginity after I had lost all my weight. Okay. <laughs> Go figure. A week before my 18th birthday. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just kind of very like, what the hell is this? This is, this is really weird. It was really, it was very, very strange. Meaning, um, meaning that it was like at odds with the porn that you'd been watching. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a porn, like it wasn't porn. So my brain was trained <laughs> to, you know, uh, those two things were connected like sex and porn were the same thing. Um, and they're not the same thing. And so it was really confusing when I actually did start having sex. See, cause um, you're of the age, like, you know, you're of the generation where like you had access. I mean, like, listen, I grew up, I remember like in second grade, one of my friends got his hands on like a hustler magazine or something. Maybe, yeah. it was, maybe it was third grade. And like my friends and I, we all looked at it and it's like, you know, it's really graphic and, um, you know, hustlers particularly, um, graphic, you know, compared to like Playboy or something. And I remember we were all shocked. And then someone's mom found the magazine, and like I got like a we I got sat down and like talked to. And so I mean, yeah, that had a, made a big impression on me. But like I didn't grow up having access to internet porn. Yeah. Uh, like at the push of a button, like there's no there's no wall. Like any anybody can access that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, with the internet now, I, I I can't imagine what it's like. I mean, you, you're a parent, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Like, I mean, having to to raise a child in the digital age, I I think is is a terrifying prospect. Well, no, listen, I, listen, listen. I mean, when we get a, I mean, my daughter's young. I have a, a second child on the way. It's a little boy. I mean, they get to be. Congrats. Thanks, dude. So they get to be like 16, 17, 18 years old, or whatever. 
who knows what's going to be happening uh, that many years from now? And I'm serious. There could be like uh, virtual sex. There could be sex dolls. Like imagine a bunch of 16-year-old boys with like a lifelike, you know, Android doll or some sort of virtual reality suit, uh, you know, like – I don't want to get too like Jetsons on it, but I mean that it seems like a, it seems like a reasonable possibility considering where things are now. And um, if you're a 16 year old boy, like even if there's like a level of humor involved in it, if there's like a virtual reality sexual experience available to you, don't you think like teenage boys would be into that, or at least some would? Uh, yeah, yeah. Know, like, like suddenly you can be like it could be like participatory porn. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, uh, that might even be like doubly toxic. Yeah, and I, I feel I feel bad for uh, the, the future ladies of America, <laughs> right, right, of the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's just technology. It drives technology consumption of porn. We it's need we need really women. Women women need to make porn. You know what I'm saying? Like because this is like clearly filtered through a male psyche. And I know that maybe there are some women who are like directing porn. Like I mean, there's there's porn for women. Like we just need. We need that to become more pervasive or guys need to tune into that because like maybe they're presenting sex in a way that uh, like, actually corresponds with like how women enjoy sex. Yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. A, as opposed to just like guys like ejaculating on women's faces. Or whatever. <laughs> I, you know, I feel like it's out there like that type of porn. Um, it's just, yeah. Um, it, it seems like everything's out there. Um, yeah, it's like uh, too much. I'm sure, I'm sure like everything that I just like posited is like completely yeah, – there's like millions. Yeah, there are no new ideas in porn. No. <laughs> yeah, really, really. There's only new technology. There's no new yeah. ideas. There's only just like new ways of experiencing. Um, but I that's, think it – you know, That's, go that's ahead. the blurb for the show uh, <laughs> uh, for me. <laughs> that's the takeaway. Yeah. But no, but it's like, you know, you, you, you grow up and like, at least I grew up and I was like, ah, I never want to be one of those like crotchety old adults. And like, you know, you don't want to become that guy, you know, but I think like, I, I'm going to be very vigilant and I should be very vigilant about my children's media intake. Uh, you have to have, I think you have to have really open, honest conversations about things like drugs and sex and uh, in a way that I was not exposed to, for, like for all of my parents' wonderful intentions, and they did a great job, but um, it's hard stuff to talk about. And I think, you know, it's especially hard when there's like some sort of gap between uh, like the way that you were raised and the way that your kids are being raised, uh, like when it comes to things like technology. And I guess that's maybe always the case. But, you know, you, you think about like like what I just described with myself, like I grew up in the age of like magazines and like you grew up in the age of like dvds which quickly transitioned to like streaming video and you know who knows what my kids will grow up uh you know having exposure to like you sort of got to keep up otherwise that golf is going to be uh you know lying there untended and you're not going to have any idea that like your kid's got like a porn suit under his bed but, like, <laughs> you know what i'm saying like yeah, like uh, soccer moms asking about Snapchat, you know? Right. Yeah, so you almost have to, like, immerse. I think you have to have, like, immersion education as a parent just to keep up with, like, what is going on and to try to have some way of, like, instructing your child. Otherwise, they're just going to school you. Like, any kid, I mean, mo kids can school their parents anyways, but um, if there's a huge technology divide, it's going to be that much easier. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. It's really weird. Well, good. Now I have like low-level panic attack going. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staring. I'm like, I literally have like a picture of my sweet little like four-year-old daughter like on my desk. I'm looking at it. I'm just like, oh god. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. So, what, what's your like? What's your? Uh, you have a day job. You work. Uh, you do this uh, writing stuff on the side. Is that the way that your life is constructed? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually, uh, I write uh, for a, a large technology company. Uh, so, yeah, I write at work and I write at home. So I'm pretty, um, pretty satisfied. Um, I get to get to be creative. Um, I'm one of the lucky people that gets paid to be be creative. You get um, you get paid to be creative for this technology company. Yeah, I do. I do. And, I'd you, rather have, not- and you have a steady and you have a steady paycheck and benefits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, lots of grown man shit. Um, you know, I uh, I come from a working working class family, so I'm really terrified of being broke. Um, and I sure. work I work hard. <laughs> yeah, I bet, man. You married? Uh, no, no, I, I live with my girlfriend now. Okay, is Matt meets Vic? Is that based on her? Like, is that your relationship with her? No, no. Um, uh, that that relationship that it's based on ended a long time ago. Okay, yeah, you have perspective, you know. <laughs> with, yeah. with time comes perspective. Um, well, cool, man. And then uh, Austin, good place to live. That's a good place to be a writer and have a creative impulse. So you got a lot of uh, compatriots there. Yeah, I mean, it's a good community. Um, most of the people, most of my community, um, uh, or most of the people I hang out with are in the visual arts community. Um, and uh, um, they're really, just the arts community in general in Austin um, is really great because they'll they'll just support the shit out of you. Like, they love local artists and, you know, they'll turn out and um, uh, really cheer you on. Uh, it's It's really great. Um, uh, it's changing a lot, Austin, just like any other city, it's kind of, you know, gentrification run wild. Um, but you know, um, I well, can especially, buy, especially, especially cause it's like a, a desirable place to live and like, maybe like the only bastion of like, um, you know, uh, liberalism in Texas. I mean, where does that, where does any, anybody else who's like kind of a freaky lefty artist, like they're going to go to Austin or they're going to get the fuck out, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, or, or Marfa maybe, but yeah, Marfa. Houston, I mean, Houston has its pockets, and so does Dallas. I mean, uh, most of the urban areas are, are pretty liberal, um, actually, in Texas. It's the rural areas that you get into the you know hyper conservative uh, uh, peoples. So yeah, Texas is a beast, man. It's an interesting yeah. place. I want to drive around Texas. Like, there's a there's a there's a great beauty, and I think that beauty kind of stretches up into Oklahoma as well. Like that that big sky country, just like that desolate. You know, maybe you see like a gas station once every like 150 <laughs> miles or whatever. Yeah, I loves. Yeah, yeah. Have to take my, uh, take a family road trip out there and freak ourselves out. West Texas is really beautiful. Is like mountains and Marfa is out there. If you've ever heard heard about that town, sure, um, it's popular. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's great. It's uh, you know Big Bend as well is pretty amazing. So what's Big Bend? Uh, Big Bend is like a mountain range um, uh, out in West Texas. Um, was that in Boyhood? Where did they go in Boyhood at the end? Where he like you know, I, I still haven't seen that movie. Oh. Uh, my my girlfriend watched it, and I was in the next room, and I overheard some of it, but <laughs> uh, I I haven't watched it yet. Uh, they, they, he drops acid, uh, you know, in some sort of beautiful spot in Texas. Uh, I think it's yeah. acid. Maybe it's mushrooms. I can't remember. Yeah, Linklater is a legend around these parts. He's, you ever see him? You ever see him in Austin? Uh, no, I've never seen him like personally. But um, you know, that movie Slacker is a was filmed in Austin, and it's a big Austin movie, and um, is just a good document of old Austin. Um, uh, I like that guy. I like his movies, uh, but still haven't seen uh, seen Boyhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he's great. I like. It. He seems like. Uh... 
I love people who like don't get caught up in the bullshit and seem to be in it for the right reasons and just keep doing the work, like just like with humility and just like they just keep doing it. And yeah, he has. Yeah. I think he has a real uh, strong sense of why he's doing it. Um, you know, it's and it's for the right reasons or something. You know, there's a purity if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, he does like you know Hollywood blockbusters and then these really like cerebral strange movies and then you know it just does all kinds of uh different types of movies which i think are, is really really interesting um and has and- just and has never ever like really he never lived in los angeles i mean he's done this all from afar it's extraordinary yeah that's that's pretty amazing you're in los angeles right yeah, what the fuck am i doing here i'm moving to austin <laughs> <laughs> save a spot save a spot for me before it completely gentrifies and it's just lost <laughs> um well awesome dude so and then like down the road like i mean are you are you gaming this and thinking to yourself like one day i'm going to support myself solely with books and writing or are you um content to kind of like work the day job and, and have this writing thing fit in around it um you know like i'm i'm gonna write regardless of what happens um sure you know whatever um if, if success comes my way that's fine um but you know i have i have I know people who are really, really successful who are, you know, looking for jobs and, um, I don't have any illusions about what, right, where writing is going to take me. Um, I just want to write and, um, uh, put books out. And if, uh, people like them, uh, I'm, I, I feel lucky. Um, you know, if not, so be it, I'll probably still, you know, be miserable on hunched over my keyboard. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, but yeah, like, uh, I enjoy my job. Uh, you know, it's got the same, shittiness as every other job has but it's a it's a pretty good job and i enjoy the people i work with so i'm lucky in that way cool man well it's been awesome talking to you i congratulate you on all of your success and uh just thank you for um you know being so open and and taking the time to uh to do the show all right man thanks for having me i appreciate it all right guys there you go that's timothy willis timothy willis sanders timothy willis sanders his novel's called Matt Meets Vic. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. You can find him online. Uh, his website is uh, timothypresence.com, as in spiritual presence. He's also on Twitter, where his handle is at Timothy Sanders. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out uh, killrockstars.com. Though I did play some Ravi Shankar uh, at the front of the show. During the uh, letter when I was reading mail. Don't forget about the app. This program has its own app. Did you know that? It's got an app. The Other People app. It's the official app of the Other People podcast. And it's a free app. The app is free. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your iPad. It's available It's available for your Android phone. Your Android device. It's free. You get the app on your device. You can... Uh, access the most recent 50 episodes for free and then if you want to listen to the deeper archives sign up for premium within the app support the show cost you a couple bucks a month yeah as as little as 75 cents a month depends on which plan you sign up for why don't you do that your heart is magic thanks to Kara, by the way for that letter it's a heartfelt letter thanks to neem karoli baba it is nice to make people food. Make, make your friend a sandwich. For God's sakes. How hard is it to make somebody a sandwich? Make someone a sandwich. I hope I didn't sound too harsh when I was interviewing my daughter with those cut-ins. I was trying to be funny.
I'm a very gentle father. <laughs> I don't want you thinking I'm like some sort of uh, tyrant. I'm trying my best. Please remember that Karl Marx regularly read Shakespeare to his young children and that Nelson Algren once said, quote, there is no way of being a creative writer in America without being a loser. End quote. That's it for now. That's the end of the show. We've, we've arrived at the end. Thanks to Timothy Willis Sanders. Thanks to Civil Coping Mechanisms. Thanks to you guys uh, for listening. As always, I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back again soon. I'm coming back with uh, another episode. I'm coming at you with another episode in about a week. In exactly a week. If you're listening to this on Wednesday. If not, then that's when the next episode will come out. next. Week. You know how this works. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs>